0: We're getting close to the end of the 12th year, if you can believe that. Uh, Thanks to, uh, let's see, thanks to Mickey, Hassan, and David for their support of this week's show and making a donation during the week. Thanks to everyone else who also hit the Super Chat last week and everything and who do so tonight. Steve Jones is back. Uh, We've got a big, big show, big topic, and... uh, so uh, hold tight for this. It's going to be probably upsetting for a lot of people, and it's going to be a deep discussion on the crucifixion and its impact on history leading all the way up to World War Two and uh, everything in between, and probably, beyond. and beyond World War II. Yeah, I was just going to say that. And um, so... Well, here we go. Steve, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me on. Uh,
1: this is going to be, like I said, it's going to be a little of a woolly discussion. I've already asked you to bring me back on track if I if I wander a little bit. Uh, there's a wealth of information that's going to be revealed here. Uh, and to be honest with you, I haven't, because of the controversial nature of it, I have been reluctant myself to to bring it out too much. But we talked about that la- a couple of weeks ago. So, well, let's Let's, well, let's see if we
0: can do it. With all of my shows on Islam that we did over the last year, year and a half with Lloyd and Todd and Sonia Azzam and others, I don't think we can get people rattled too much more than that. So I'm braced for impact, but uh, <laughs> you want to give a <clears throat> quick rundown for those who uh, don't know who you are? Give a, a rundown on your history and background.
1: Uh, basically, I'm a researcher. I former, I formerly worked at a seminary. Uh, I still currently, I I'm used to teach liturgy and music, basically, and still do. i was affiliated with a seminary. I was affiliated with a military academy in the area, ran the chapel, a huge chapel. Uh, but I've I've always had connections with within hierarchies within the Orthodox Church in different places. Uh, It's more that I had access to resources that most people don't have. Uh, And by pulling those things together, I came up with stories and versions of history that I'm not sure people are ready to hear. I don't know. We'll find out.
0: Well, and hopefully uh, other scholars that have been tiptoeing around this issue for decades, centuries, whatever the case may be, uh, feel brave enough to start addressing it after we do this evening.
1: I tiptoe is exactly right because it's in my view that you really can't fix a problem unless you're willing to discuss the source of a problem, and that source may be very uncomfortable to discuss. But it's there, there, there it is, and until you actually address it, you're not fixing anything. So I, I want to say in the outset that uh, my neighbors when I grew up were Jewish. Uh, the girl in the family I still consider I'm fairly close to her. Uh, I played for a wedding uh, and they would invite me over. They're very kind people. So whatever I say here, I don't want to sound like I'm disparaging Jews or any, or Christians either. Uh, But there's a story, you know, know, one of the, uh, one of the problems with Christianity is we're constantly looking for things to corroborate whether Christianity is a, a real religion or whether these stories are factual or not. And, what I became convinced of is there's lots of literature out there that we've not, we've neglected. It's been sitting right in front of our face, but we haven't seen it and we haven't interpreted it correctly. Even though scholars have interpreted it correctly over the past, it's usually been buried and because of the controversial nature of it. So what we're, I'm planning to do here, if I hope it.
0: Well, let me, let me just interject. And part of the controversial controversial nature of it is millions of people getting slaughtered in world war ii
1: absolutely right it it, it's the nature of what it's one aspect i wouldn't say it's the entire aspect but it's one aspect behind the holocaust uh one thing that never gets brought up is the christian holocaust in world war ii where 20 million christians were killed by the communists Uh, and all plays together but you got to see where where the problem starts
0: well, yeah, and then you have you know the Holocaust against the uh, Armenians by the Turks, and then you have this guy uh, Chunk Yogurt going around calling his channel "Young Turks" and stuff, rubbing it in everybody's faces. And yeah. then there's, and then even today, Christians are the most persecuted people uh, on the planet, you know, and the and the leftist fake news media constantly plays these massacres down.
1: And that's where I think this will put shine a light on this. My intention here is not to upset any Christians or any Jews. My intention here is to lay bare the real problem with the hope that people can see through it and then realize there's a better future for us all if we see it for what it is than if we pretend it's something it's not. So uh, let me begin. I told Jan I was going to basically treat this a little bit as a, a... a da Vinci Code type thing. I started out about 20 years ago on this, at, and I was at the seminary, and it, it bothered me, the number of seminarians and students that came through, and even professors that claimed to be Christians. They wear the collar, they do all the routine and stuff like that, but really, in my estimation, were barely, barely Christian at all. A lot of the stuff that they would teach seemed a little bit more psychological than, than Christian. Uh, and I think a lot of people have been exposed to this. But what I did is at the time I figured I had all these resources, they have a fabulous library. Um, I thought I would dig down and really kind of objectively just decide where this all happened. Why Why did we end up an era where, a, you know, semi amount of people professed to have faith, but when you dug down, it really wasn't much. I'm old enough to remember the fifties when every church was packed, it didn't matter which the denomination was. And then Vatican II hit, and it's like everybody cleared out and scared everywhere. Um, so I, what I hope to do is eventually start at the beginning here and address that. What I did, my, my little escapade started with, rather than being tainted with anything, I thought I'm going to be objective, and I always was very much into science, I thought I'm going to start with what I thought was the most controversial aspect of the Church against science that there was, which I I figured to be the trial of Galileo. And what I did is I found lots of science books telling science's side of it, but I could not find any book that showed the Church's side of it. It, it was buried to history.
0: Right. And there's a lot of disinformation that I've discovered around that whole trial as well. There
1: is. There is tons of
0: disinformation. You know, not that I expected. It, it, to... Let me, just to interject, just like, you know, there is a ton of misinformation about uh, the Catholic Church with the, uh, you know, so-called uh, witch hunts. You know, they only happened along the, the German border, and the Catholic Church stopped they were stopping it and yet they got accused of doing it and then right. you know the, there was you know a couple of hundred or maybe a couple thousand that were put to death for witchcraft and then that's blown up to millions of people etc and there's Yeah, a, it
1: came out about 3000 people actually died from the
0: Right. From and, the, yeah, and I have a, a good book called Bearing False Witness that goes into some of that history as well the Inquisition at
1: most 3,000 people died and it gets built up into millions and millions and millions.
0: Right. And then, yeah. And then everybody's, you know, all these leftists use that as reason to attack the Catholic church and then Christianity as a whole. And, you know, of course, these people have never read the New Testament.
1: Right. Well, and maybe I'm going to put a new light on the New Testament too. it. You may see some of this fresh again. Uh, So what I did is the Finally, I, this was right about when the internet was getting going, and the best book I was able to find, the only book I was able to find that I thought maybe would reveal the other side of the story was a book by Robert Bellarmine, which was Galileo's trial judge, and it was called Controversies. And I found it on eBay, so I thought, well, we'll buy it. It was $200, and I procrastinated because I thought it was too much to spend for a book. But after about two, three weeks, I decided that's the only book out there I could find that had, you know, even had a glimmer of hope of having, maybe having the other side of the story. I bought the book and about two weeks later, this big, huge box shows up on my doorstep. <laughs> I opened the box and not only was it the, the book by Bellerman, but it was the original book by Bellerman.
0: Oh, wow. <clears throat> you it, want to show was, that on screen? Uh, if you want to talk, I can go get it. Yeah, let's show that. I'm All sure right, hold the, on, I'll go. Get sure. It. Well, you know it, uh, an important piece of history like that, I'm sure people want to see the original deal there because that book was probably worth thousands of dollars and you, you managed to get hold of it for uh, 200 bucks. So you can't complain about that. But, uh, yeah, you know, the whole history with Bellarmine and the Catholic Church, the Inquisitions, uh, Galileo, et cetera, there's so much hype and disinformation that the public has absorbed regarding that. And a lot of that fake history was put out by the Royal Society and, and, you know, people like the Huxleys and, well, the whole crew of them. So yeah, show us that that old thing. Right. How, how old is I, I how old is that book?
1: This is dated sixteen fifteen. I'll show it to you. Wow! Which, and you
0: got that for two hundred bucks. That thing has got to be worth.
1: Well, it's been it's been rebound, so this is not the original cult cover here. Okay. That fell off, <laughs> but the rest is in actually almost immaculate shape, considering how old it is. I don't. I'm not. I don't have my screen on here, so you will have to tell me if I.
0: You're gonna need to hold it up a lot higher if we're gonna see it.
1: Okay, I don't want to wreck it, so.
0: Yeah, I'll hold it up about six or eight inches higher. There you go. All right, cool.
1: Okay, let me let me give you the title page because it's beautiful. How's that?
0: Wow. Yeah, you don't see books printed in quality like that anymore. I don't have anything that old. The oldest book I have is maybe 150 years old.
1: And here, here you go, is the other title page
0: wow so so
1: having you know have the having that book i you know i was personally shocked myself because i didn't think i wasn't expecting it so i found a history professor religion history professor from market university and a former i believe it was a jesuit from market university who ran a bookstore retired to run a bookstore and i took it to him he said I had one of three in private hands. Oh, wow. And he would, they, both of them were
0: shocked that well, I would have such if a If you ever that... decide to get rid of it, consider me first in line.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, but what happened is it opened a door for me because then I went to the history professor from Marquette University and he said, there's another story that's going on here. Nobody seems to be interested. And in. I said, well, how do I get started in this? And he recommended a book for me. I don't have it out right now, but it's called Galileo Heretic. And it's the true story of a guy who actually got into the Vatican archives, the secret archives, and found the original trial documents to Galileo. And those documents do exist. I, I've got a copy here, uh, and they're in the book too, that they It's actually found it in two books. It was that and then that book was referred to by another book in Oxford University on uh, atomism and the history of, of philosophy. But what the document shows is that the real trial of Galileo did not have so much to do with astronomy as it had to do with the two ways of thinking. That they were worried about this new way of thinking coming out, which Galileo advocated that it ever, ever took hold it would destroy it would destroy civilization it would destroy the church and it would destroy uh it was just a, a, what they thought was a very explosive dangerous uh philosophy so it and- wasn't just that they arrested Galileo they, they put him in they didn't put him behind bars or anything but he was near the end of his life and they just said go sit over here but not it was so um, controversial they actually did the same thing to just about everybody had anything to do with the trial so what happened for me I didn't know what to make of it because this is before this was before I had discovered anything to do with logos or you know had any real instruction with that so I started following back the astronomical aspect of it because the ostensibly the whole Galileo trial was about the the earth being in the center of the solar system versus the sun being in the center of the solar system. I followed that all the way back and I found out that there was actually quite a controversy going on. In number one, the trial of Galileo wasn't until after 1615, the, when it started getting becoming a dispute, the Catholic Church had already changed its calendars in 1585 meaning it wouldn't have been that controversial that because people like Copernicus were already claiming that the sun was in the center of the solar system. So I realized there had to be another dispute going on here that was far deeper than what the books were talking about. Always. Well, coincidentally, what I did is I started looking at, uh, here, I'm I'm going to obstruct the lens here a second. But one of the things here that um, was part of the whole discussion was a thing called astrolabes. Here's an astrolabe. Tell me if I... Hold it up
0: higher, please. It's It's got got quite a reflection on it. I don't know if you can turn it a little bit. There you go.
1: Uh, Maybe I can find one that doesn't have... I've got a whole collection here. I've got one that doesn't reflect so much. And I've got a bigger one that's cardboard. Here's, here's a cart. Here's another one, a metal one. Sure. This is a cart. This is a cardboard version of it. Right. You can see that.
0: Yeah, I've got. It's, I've it, got one of those somewhere in the house. <clears throat>
1: yeah, it's basically the solar the the solar system above the Earth, looking as if God was looking down on the Earth, and by using that they could they could duplicate the motions of the stars, um, and tell. They, these things were not number one they were used for geopositioning they were used for doing math problems they were doing you know all sorts of things it really was uh, kind of a mini computer of the day it was an, it literally was an analog computer for its day typically people would say these things were invented at the beginning of the renaissance and things like that but at the beginning of the 20th century there was a mechanical astrolabe that was found uh, off the island of Antikythera in Greece. With At first, they thought the dating of that device was about 100 AD. Recent datings of it go back to about 250, if not 300 BC, which means whoever the magi were, or whoever the story was, would have had a very deep understanding of astronomy because these devices were it showed that these, and the devices from 250 D- BC had very intricately carved and machine gears. Uh, I think it has like 15 gears in it. They yeah, used what's
0: it, that thing called again? I've seen that. Tell, give me the name of it again. The anti-Kithera
1: device. Anti is just anti, but Kithera is K-Y-T-H-E-R-A.
0: They're calling it uh, mechanism here.
1: Yeah. That's true. Some do.
0: Yeah, and then uh, back about what five, ten years ago, somebody had uh, recreated that as well. I'm gonna. That's sh-
1: true. There are places uh, Hewlett Packard does have a used to have a website. I don't know if it's there anymore, where you could actually download the files and inspect them personally yourself. Uh, it might be worth looking up if somebody's interested in. It. But it gave me the it gave me the idea, that. The star of Bethlehem had more significance than what we were giving it. And that if these were real live astronomers and knew what they were doing, which a lot of them clearly knew very much what they were doing, the star of Bethlehem was not just some mythological device. And so one day a what star I was you doing,
0: mean p- Pardon? A mythological star or device? Right,
1: right. Well, star, a, a way of looking at things. That, Got it. That, um so what happened is i one day i was actually in church and i was listening to the 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 christmas gospel start talking about the star of bethlehem and i realized that the 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 verse had been mistranslated and what it what the real verse has to do with a star in the east leading somebody to the west when i looked it up and actually checked the, the, the the greek on it it literally meant that there would be the, the terms that were used are actually navigational terms that had been mistranslated into being his star. And his star actually was another version of a star named Asterion, named after Esther.
0: Oh, wow. Asterion, and, you know, I've tried to look into the roots of uh, the word Esther and, and whatnot, too, but it sounds like you got further than I did.
1: It's going to be laden with a whole problem, <laughs> major problems. Uh, basically any name like astro uh start when you say star in the east the original spelling of west was o-e-s-t not w-e-s-t the original spelling of Esther is o-e in some places uh it, it gets confused because uh venerable bead wrote a thing on the calendar where everything got connected with spring rites and paganism and things like that i'm convinced that had nothing to do with this uh but but what it came down to i'm going to shift gears a little bit when i started taking the course on logos philosophy one of the books that was made a big deal of was a book called the continuity of religion by a bishop busway and so my thinking was the Star of Bethlehem was not a mythological device. It would make more sense if it was a timing device, a chronological device, that they were timing something. Busway insisted that the time period from the, of Daniel's prophecy was 470 years. And that prophecy was supposed to be a predictive of the birth of Christ or the coming out of Christ, I should say. And Boussoui insisted that that was one of the main tenets of Christianity, that that, that, that number could be recovered uh, at some point and prove Christ's divinity. So I started going and thinking that, well, he didn't have the devices, the astrolabes are kind of crude, but we do have computers nowadays, which, you know, you can download them for free and, and check these things out. And interestingly... Most cultures you know, at that time period would use eclipses for the major time periods and to, to demark you know when things were happening. So I you know t- having taken astronomy in college, I, I realized every every you know planetarium at Christmas time has a star of Bethlehem uh, episode, which they you know they they tell you about the the whole Christmas story i started checking into it and really what happened is i realized that there if they were timing something you would have to take what they considered the star bethlehem which was a conjunction of planets used for calibrating this astrolabe and finding directions and take it back to when that occurrence had previously happened
0: Hmm.
1: and so i was thinking well so i got a program start you know cranking it backwards and i ended up almost precisely to afford the same time period and it what happened is the same conjunction happened during daylight 12 o'clock noon i think that the date was 535 bc or i forget the exact date i've got it here somewhere but what happened was it was during the day and I thought, well, that kind of blows my theory, because if it's during the daylight, nobody would have seen it. Until then, I went to bed that night and got up about three in the morning, I realized, unless there was an eclipse. Oh. So I checked the time period. Not only was there an eclipse, it was one of the most massive eclipses that ever happened anywhere. Wow. So I started looking into the biblical material. And... In the King James Bible, pretty much everywhere in the Old Testament, especially at the beginning, they use the word scepter. The Greek word is actually "eclipse." So, what happens now? You have you got two ends of a puzzle. You got one end of a puzzle where you got a termination date, but what's the beginning date, and what are they timing? All the different accounts say that the, what begins the clock is the West wedding feast of Esther. And this is where the problem arises. Okay?
0: All right. Now,
1: I'm going to shift gears a bit. I'm going to ask you to kind of remember that story, the significance of Esther, because I do think they're timing something. I'm not sure how Esther plays into it. We'll get into that in a little bit.
0: Okay? All right.
1: So one of the problems is now we're going to switch ahead to the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John is very much, it's considered a separate gospel from the other three. The other three are called what it's called synoptic gospels, because they don't quite correlate with John. John is considered a very philosophical, uh, in fact, that's some why sometimes in history, they actually, people have tried to sell it as a Gnostic gospel, which it really is not. Uh, what there was, though, at one time, uh, one of the most, highly regarded Bible scholars, you can look them up, is a guy by the name of F.F. F. Bruce. And in, in his book, The Canon of Scripture, he has he's recovered the original preface to the Gospel of John. And I'll read it. The Gospel of John was published and given to the churches by John while he was still in the body as Papias of Hierapolis, John's dear disciple has related in his five exoteric, that is, last books. He wrote down the gospel accurately at John's dictation, but the heretic Marcion, which was a Gnostic, was rejected by John, having been condemned by him for his contrary views. Marcion had carried the writings or letters to him from the brothers in Pontus. So right at the beginning, we ended up in the 17th, 18th century with this conjecture that the gospel of John was really a Gnostic gospel, but the original preface specifically says it's not by condemning Marcion is specifically saying it's not a Gnostic gospel. Right. But it also says it's written by Papias at John's dictation. If you also look at the back of John, uh, there's another at there, there's a, a final verse on it, which uh, let's see if I've got it here john twenty one twenty four, this is the disciple who is considered papius which testifieth of these things and wrote these things and we know that his testimony is true and there are also many other things which jesus did the which if they should be written every one i suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written amen
0: so and, now you i was just got, go ahead no go ahead I was just going to say, and back then, you know, people didn't have cameras and audio recordings and whatnot. And when two or more people gave witness to something, it was given as fact.
1: Right. Well, at the other, well, the, the thing is, uh, and I've got this, that's why, the reason I've got this screen up, uh, a very scholarly book. In fact, it's pretty expensive, but it's called the Dionysian gospel uh, written by professor Dennis R. McDonald. Uh, it, it's looking at the, the basis of the fourth gospel uh, and where it came from, and what it is. And he's not alone in this, but Papius actually has several writings that largely are ignored. We, we look at the, the testification, the testimony of the four gospels, but Papias is also considered the author of perhaps some of the epistles but more precisely uh, a collection of books called the Logios of Papias which all have to do the life of Christ so now you're starting to bring in other texts that most people don't know about and these are not Gnostic texts they're just semi semi lost but they exist to some degree now the, the thing is The problem is, and this is where it's going to get kind of sticky. The problem is there are discrepancies in John's gospel that don't quite align with the other three gospels. To make one example, when Christ goes before Caiaphas, in the other gospels, he goes before the Sanhedrin. So the the people are speculating, well, why, why would John just give it to you know, one at character, one or two characters, when the other gospels made it into this big deal. And, there, and you, you look at the other thing, there's there's situations where uh, the crowd is la- yelling things like crucify him, crucify him. There's, There's episodes within the gospel that several scholars are beginning to consider that the gospel is actually a written version of a play that was written and developed by Papias during the, you know, during the cycle through after the crucifixion. And and this play was based on an ancient play by Euripides called the Bacchae. Now there's there's plenty of testimony of this, not only in the early church fathers, but even in the Bible itself. let me see if I can find it here. There's, there's a point where Peter, let me see it here. Peter. Peter is defending, being defended by a Jewish Pharisee by the name of Gamaliel in Acts 5, 38 to 39. And Peter in the defense of, of or I should say Gamaliel in defense of Peter is actually using a word from the Bacchae, accusing the Pharisees of acting like the Bacchae. Okay? So not only do you have later developments in Christianity that are referring back to the Bacchae, but you have actually portions in the Gospel where itself is using a word that came from the Bacchae, accusing the Pharisees of being being the Bacchae.
0: Now, what is so, a Bacchae, just to be clear? Okay, so
1: now we now that comes to a story we have to tell about the Bacchae. The Bakai is a story, I'm, I'm not going to use all the terms here of the different people because you're just going to get confused, but re- it's really about a young king who has recently been made king by his father and his mother to take over uh, the, the kingdom of Thieves, I believe it is. And he notices right off that all the women regularly are leaving leaving the civilized town and going up to the mountains for some reason he doesn't know and in this whole thing his name pentheus the king is he's trying to be very reasonable he's trying to say he's trying to be handle all this but he realized that the that the uh makai are going up and worshiping hermes they're hermeticists getting into drunken parties and things like that so Dionysius, the god of wine, comes to to Pentheus and says, maybe you should go up and check on this. And so he convinces him to dress up and drag as a woman and enter this party to actually confront what's really going on. So the king goes up into the party, starts drinking of wine, and, and all of a sudden all hell breaks loose and it becomes it becomes orgiastic and violent and things. And eventually the, the tale ends with Pentheus' mother uh, slicing the king into bits and eating him. So the the women are, are, are called the Bacchae. And about the time of Christ, this was a play that was be, that, that had somewhat some popularity. Josephus refers to even, I believe it's the Jewish wars where Jerusalem is falling apart and they ran out of food and this one woman this Jewish woman is so in so much despair she eats her child it's literally lifted right out of the play so what what happens is you end up with this controversial thing what really is John talking about and if he's writing a play what it's why is he writing a play at this point in time if this is a big thing going on what all this other kind of stuff Now we're going to shift gears a little bit again and the gears we're going to shift into is in the play itself and in the other gospels too is it comes the quotation when it comes to the crucifixion of christ we the jews the pharisees go to the authorities and say we have no law to crucify him which most people don't realize but this is a very curious thing for Pharisees to ask somebody for the authority to do. What makes it curious is that in the prior century they had killed seven hundred Pharisees by crucifixion. The Jews had. The Jews did. Uh, so, and, and you end up with this oddball discussion. If you want, to, let me hold a book up here. There's several books I'm going to bring up here, and Jan has asked me to to demonstrate this. This is a book, Baker Academic, Ancient Jewish-Christian Perceptions of the Crucifixion. Okay? All right. All this stuff, a lot of this controversy is in this book. You go back, and what you realize, the Jews had the authority to crucify robbers and thieves, which was crucified along Christ. But their version of crucifixion before that crucifixion was to stone them. And once dead would hang them on a pole for to humiliate people, the family or whoever was associated with the the criminal. They did not have any authority to actually crucify on a cross. And that they were appealing, that's why they appealed to the Roman government because they did crucify people with a cross the the rub there however was that the roman empire only convicted people for sedition against the empire they did not convict anybody for uh for religious ideals or
0: heresy or anything like that which is totally contrary to popular belief Right,
1: they, and, and well, and it's not contrary to the Bible because the Bible, specific, Pilate says, "We have no authority over this matter. We, there, we don't have any authority." Uh, what you end up with is, well, why are they trying to crucify him then, and why this unique form of crucifixion? Uh, and I'm going to quote something here. And really, what it amounts to, they had no authority to kill him as a as a. Uh, for anything that Jesus was blamed for,
0: in other words, no robbery, uh, murder, etc.
1: Right. So what they were really going to, back to the Old Testament, and if you look at, at a lot of extensive literature, what you're going to find is that they considered Christ a wizard. And if you go to Exodus 20 to 18, it specifically says. Wizards, thou shalt not suffer to live.
0: Right, and that also gets translated as, as uh, witches, doesn't it?
1: I believe so. In Jewish thought, the cross was symbolic of a particular mystical damning. The biblical law is found at Deuteronomy twenty-one, twenty-two to twenty-three. The Septuagint gives an accurate translation of the Hebrew text. And if a man have committed a sin worthy of death, and he to be put to death, and thou shalt hang him on a tree his body shall not remain all night upon the tree but thou shalt in any wise bury him that day for he that is hanged is a curse of god that thy land be not defiled, which the lord thy god giveth thee for an inheritance uh, and that was that's backed up also in the epistles by paul christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law being made a curse for us for it is written cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree and it's commonly understood when they're turning to a tree they're talking about a cross.
0: Okay? Right. Now, in my uh, book on uh, the Jewish Talmud versus Islam, I had written about, uh, now I'm forgetting the name off the top of my head, who is the biblical character who, uh, he's in the Old Testament, and he's accused of... uh, heresy and witchcraft and whatnot and he's put to death now why can't i think of his name off the top of my head i'm it's off the top of my head i i'm uh i'm trying to think of it right now but he's talked about in the old testament and then in the jewish talmud this is supposed to be a reference to jesus yes uh,
1: and if you want a scholarly book on that, um, uh, that would be this one, Jesus in the Talmud.
0: Right. And that's by, uh, what's his name from Princeton, correct? Peter Schaefer. Peter Schaefer. Now, what do you think yes. of that book? Is it good?
1: Uh, well, it's, it's a Jewish book. So it's written from a Jewish perspective, but I think he's laying bare. It, it, it fits my theory. Um, I don't, I don't have any con I don't contest it, I guess, uh, but it's it's reading things into the Talmud most people wouldn't, don't always see
0: there. Right. Uh,
1: but there's a lot of Christian writing up until, again, 1950, 1960 that would have said the same thing.
0: Now that's the the one book that I need to read before I finish and publish my book on uh, the Talmud versus Islam. You know, because Talk to me. what's that?
1: Talk to me after the show.
0: Yeah, well, have have I sent you my uh, my book on that? It's about 122 pages, eight and a half by 11, right now.
1: No, but you'll I'll I'll, I'll tell you after the show because I can solve that problem a little bit.
0: All right. <laughs>
1: um, I'd rather not go into
0: it here, but I, yeah, I can solve sure. the problem. Yeah, a bit. go ahead. Sorry, I didn't mean to distract you. No,
1: no, no. But the problem the problem here is that what what were the Jews really doing at the crucifixion? And the crucifixion comes down to what they were really doing. And this, again, this is a scholarly book from the ancient Jewish and Christian perceptions of the crucifixion, is what they really were doing was using the crucifixion not only to damn Jesus, but to damn God. And the thought was that you could, that you could get away with that until sundown, And but if you left the person up after sundown, somehow that damning fell on you. So that was, that's the thinking of why you hung him on the cross. The cross was symbolic of of a, a damning situation. And like I said, it it, it also included, which is con- totally consistent with the gospel. They took him down before sunset because the, the curse would have fell on the entire Jewish nation had they kept them up past that. And this... Brings out the stickiness about the whole thing because now I want you to remember two things. You got this idea of the crucifixion. What is the crucifixion? But you also have this idea that we just talked about that had to do with you know crucify him, crucify him. The Jews are the the Jews are guilty of deicide type thing, which I personally it comes from John. I believe in the context it was if you see this as a play, which I do you realize that the play is not condemning all the Jews, it's condemning the Pharisees. The, the 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 point in the play that did this was the point that would, in a Greek play, would be the Greek chorus. So it wasn't really typifying what the Jews themselves thinking. Usually the Greek chorus is uh, ex- proclaiming what is in the mind of a certain character at a time. It's... it's you think of the Greek chorus as sort of the word balloons in a in a cartoon, in a sense. Okay? So
0: I just found the name of the character in my book, and it's uh, Balaam. Right, Balaam's ass. Right, exactly.
1: Now, and here's where it gets extremely sticky now, and I hope you can remember the other points, is that in my book, when I was originally researching the astronomy of the Star of Bethlehem, I realized that there is a, a similarity between the book of Esther and the Gospels. You have, you have this bad guy who's being crucified. You have all these different things happy's marched through the streets and all these other kind of things. And typically, when you looked it up in, in Christian research, they would use the book of Esther as a way of prefiguring the, the crucifixion of Christ. Which was sort of odd because the book of Esther itself, Esther is not her name, it's actually Hadassah. If you look in the pre-World War II Encyclopedia Britannica on on Esther, it specifically says Hadassah comes from the word, it's a Persian version of the word Scheherazade. And what does that mean? Scheherazade is an Arabian play about uh, a queen who is sequestered and, and brought up, one of the concubines brought up to service the king, and she realizes that her life is in danger, and if she doesn't please the king, her life, her life will be done the next day. Okay? So she, she unwinds these, these various tales that go on for a thousand and one tales which became the Thousand and One Tales of the Arabian Nights. But the episode is very oddly similar to because Esther, in the same way, goes back to the king and knows that her entire Jewish nation might perish if something wrong is going to happen.
0: Right, and Mordecai instructs her to tell a a lie. Right. And so what happens is the,
1: the Jewish nation is spared but you end up, the, the, the tide turns, the evil guy ends up being Haman.
0: Right, and then they, and, right, exactly.
1: So Haman ends up being the guy who dies in this whole affair.
0: And the 56,000 or whatever people that were under his rule.
1: Yeah, yeah. but it, that's where it gets curious though, is because if you actually look, there's, there's different episodes that, and I'm gonna get into that shortly, some of them will have a big, huge number, but some of them will have three people. One version says Haman with, with his two sons on either side, which starts becoming kind of spooky.
0: crucifix uh, crucifixion like
1: right, right, right. Now the, the difficulty this difficulty was and we talked about this off the air be- uh, a couple weeks ago this difficulty was pointed out by James Frazier he was fraser sir james fraser he, he, his whole thing was he was about he wanted to undermine christianity at its core in a way that christianity yeah. would never recover from
0: and and all obviously the witchcraft and paganism and stuff comes largely from him as well as uh professor mircha Iliade from uh, chicago university and then uh, and then all of his All of their pagan stuff is sewn into society and culture as the original and older religions.
1: All right. Now, I'm going to, this is a little bit of a reading here. Like I said, this may take more than an hour. But there's a book that was written during the 20th century by Joshua Trochtenberg called The Devil and the Jews. Hold that up. I don't have the.
0: Uh, I thought it was yeah, the one it, in your hand.
1: <laughs> no, this is a paper I'm going to read from. I, I okay. copied it out. You can download it for free just about anywhere. All right. But it was written. It was basically an apology for the Jews of why they shouldn't be crucified and how things had gotten completely out of control. So then what I'm doing here is I'm tying this ancient episode to, to modern, you know, the 20th century. In the year 415 or thereabouts in Inmastar, Syria, during the Purim celebration, a number of Jews in drunken revelry Hung a Christian boy from a cross, and so maltreated him that he died. Later in that century, probably as a result of this and perhaps other excesses, Theodosius II forbade the burning of Haman effigies and mocking the cross during their Purim festivities. Now, this is a Jewish text. This isn't. This is an apology. The extrications traditionally heaped upon the head of Haman in jest and carnival aspects of Purim celebrations could have easily led to imprudent. And offensive remarks and gestures might just as easily have been misinterpreted by hypersensitive Christians. Possibly an echo of the Theodosian prohibition, an evidence that the observance of Purim still aroused a misgiving as to its real intent, is heard in the 11th century formula of renunciation of Judaism. And it goes on um, how you know various scholars have looked at it and determined there's something there. There's some there's a problem going on. This comes down to what James Frazier had uncovered. Uh, See if I can hide. And I'm going to read a a brief example of this. We have, and this is from a golden bow, the golden bow by Sir James Frazier. And
0: not the the abridged version, which is kind of junk.
1: Yeah, thank you. What happened is Frazier wrote this with intent
0: of undermining
1: Christianity. The the part that undermines Christianity only appeared in complete text at the end of the first edition. Frazier's text is still considered the, the seminal document for anthropology to this day, but after about the third edition, they kept stripping it out because of the controversial nature of what I'm about to read to you, and it got completely buried. So nobody, it's, it, people who read it today don't realize this is where the controversy is. Mm-hmm.
0: And that was uh, volume
1: one? Uh, I believe mine is a a footnote to volume three, but the full text of it is in volume one, which is almost impossible to get a hold of.
0: All right. And uh, I've got that right behind me. So while you're reading that, I'm going to grab it.
1: We have seen reason to think that the Jewish festival of Purim is a continuation under changed name of the Babylonian Sakai, that in celebrating it by destruction of an effigy of Haman the modern Jews have kept up a reminiscence of the ancient custom of crucifying or hanging a man in the character of God at the festival. Is it not possible that in an earlier time they may, like the Babylonians themselves, have regularly compelled and condemned the criminal to play the part, to play the tragic part, and the Christ was thus perished in the character of Haman. The resemblance between the hanged Haman and crucified Christ struck the early Christians themselves, and whenever the Jews destroyed the effigy of haman they're accused by their christian neighbors of deriding the most sacred mystery in the new faith and that part of it is actually true
0: and that is out of this James Bra- this yeah. book here the dying god this is volume three of the golden bow right and uh so you're saying that we sh- what what page do you know is that from
1: uh i didn't copy the page number on it. it's it's in mine. It was at the end, uh, the scapegoat section called the scapegoat.
0: All right. <clears throat> but uh, yeah, you know, and years ago I started trying to track down all of the original first edition copies of this, this uh, set of Frasers. and you know they're they're not always easy to get, especially the first editions.
1: The the one if you want another version, you probably don't have is the major person contesting all this uh was a guy by the name of andrew lang
0: he was another
1: early anthropologist okay and he has the christian version of this he attacks fraser for doing exactly what he's doing he's trying to destroy christianity this is probably in some ways more informative than what the Frasier thing is because he's got a level head about it.
0: So now I'm just going to, and I think I already mentioned the Royal society earlier. I'm just going to throw, uh, throw up uh, Sir James George Fraser uh, up on screen here from the database so that everybody can see his connections. So uh, he, he does a similar theme. I already mentioned Mircea Iliade or Mircea Iliade and then Joseph Campbell. But he's a member of the Royal Society, University of Glasgow, uh, Trinity College at Cambridge. But uh, he's the one who, who creates the idea of primitive culture, etc., and, and sells um, uh, a lot of the pagan uh, beliefs that people have now, and that Christianity destroyed the pagan beliefs. But he's also heavily influenced by Hermeticism, the Hermetic tradition here. Then he goes on to influence Bronislaw Malinowski, and that goes into a whole other level. And Bronislaw Malinowski uh, was uh, taught or worked with uh, Margaret Mead, whose husband, Gregory Bateson, of course, co-founded the CIA. And that gets into MKUltra. And then uh, he was also the biggest influence behind uh, Wilhelm Reich and what was his book, Sex and Savage Society or something like that. Or uh, Sex and Repression in Savage Society, which I have a copy of that downstairs. But uh, so all of the, you know, the golden bow and all of this stuff flows down into Molinowski through Sir James George Fraser. Well,
1: and we, we tend to think of Hermeticism as being this kind of new agey, simple, kind of innocent, alternate version of looking at things. So and you look so, at it, just, it's got just, a nasty side of it.
0: Somebody just uh, said, wait for it. And uh, so just to, so early doesn't have to sit on the edge of a seat. Huxley, go ahead.
1: So what I mean, so what when you look at Gnosticism, even modern liberalism, you look at it as being, well, this, what's wrong with this? Well, they've got a secret story here. I'm convinced they know, but we don't we're not so cluey on it. What happens is look at this evidence. You've got the Jews in the very, between a rock and a hard place with Frasier. He's saying, he's literally claiming that the Jews, since the time of Esther, had crucified somebody in effigy. Christ is not a unique creature at all. He's just another one of these people. But not only that, they've been crucifying people for thousands of years. And this needs to stop because what happens is this Purim festival uniquely falls about, often during the middle of of easter season so it wasn't uncommon before world war ii to find effigies of what the christians thought was jesus being burnt and crucified and torn apart by jews assuming that they were
0: you know and it was actually haman correct or Haman. well it gets it
1: came it gets it gets stickier okay? okay the problem is who is this guy and the book that I just held up about uh, crucifixion, he knows is the another one that this appears in is a, this, this book is still, it's not the original cover. This still book is still the seminal book on Esther. And you, you can see it referred to in here too. Uh, this Hold is it up higher, please. Louis pa- uh Louis Bales Payton. It's still considered the authoritative book on Esther.
0: I forgot to turn on lights this evening. That kind of (laughs) helps. All right. Critical and exegetical commentary on the book of Esther.
1: Right. So what the only reason I'm holding this up is because it may sound like I'm just reaching for oddball knowledge or secret. This is stuff documented in scholarly text. This isn't stuff just dragged out of anywhere. We don't talk about today. It's controversial, but it's all there. So what they what these scholars have realized is there's this oddball coincidence between Christ and Haman. The problem is, the Jews themselves are proclaiming that the crucifixion was unique to Christ and those after who were Christians. Yet, what is this Haman 500 years before Christ being doing crucified, if that's true? If it's true you could claim that they were crucifying people for hundreds and hundreds of years but if you research it no scholar worth his salt today believes esther is an original text they don't know luther himself didn't think that the 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 book should even be in the bible so what is it and what's it doing there okay all right and here's where it gets very spooky, creepy, spooky. Uh, in my research, people don't realize this, but most Bibles don't even have the proper version of Esther in it. There's, there's two versions. One, one is cuts off, I believe, chapter 10. And the other version continues on to chapter 16. The verse the, in chapter ten was written in Hebrews, like the only, the only book that survived in Hebrew. After that is a Greek version. Okay, so there's some discrepancies in that. I searched around for what was the, what was the oldest existing version that you could go to. And what I came to do, the determination was. The most authoritative one was was by Josephus, and I'm going to read to you some things here that come out of josephus, and these are all let me count them up here thirteen different things
0: so of similar- in my Bible software I've got thirty two Bibles installed, and none of them go past uh chapter 10
1: all right i think we talked about this once before that the original king james went had the whole well
0: the i whole thing. i just looked at the uh king james sixteen eleven and it isn't there either oh yeah so it is not there either so i'll no, have to
1: I, we had we had the discussion once before and it, it's it's in a different part it is there oh the it's
0: in the uh, apocryphal back in
1: the back of the book I saw we It's it's in mine. I, I've i got to believe it. I think we went through this once before and you've got the same version as I, I have. I,
0: yeah. It's in the other room. It's yeah. I've yeah. got, I've got the Oxford version of it. Yeah. You can look it up. I mean, it's, it's, yeah. it's not a big deal. Some
1: have it and some don't, but it, it should, you should know it's there. The, the other six verses are kind of considered perhaps the Christian verses that were tacked on. Okay. Anyhow, Josephus' version is very curious, and I'm going to read 13 points here of similarities between Josephus' version of Esther, which, as far as I can find, is the oldest, most authoritative, uh, and the Gospel of John. Okay, number one, a final wine banquet or last supper was held on the night of the 13th, the day of revenge, the eve of the 14th to commemorate the impending doom. Okay, number two, an innocent person is condemned, a betrayer revealed. Number three, a betrayal encouraged by blood money that was rejected. Number four, the next morning, the 14th, an inquisition is held to determine the innocence of the accused resulting in a complete change of fortunes. Number five, a condemned skateboat ritual is enacted where the criminal is dressed and mocked as a king, rides a horse and is led through the streets in procession number 6 a crucifixion is held with two villains two sons in the case of haman two thieves in the case of christ number 7 the crucifixion itself is the mode of execution contrary to jewish custom that's the that actually is the rub point because in jewish law the the crucified is never killed by the execute by the the crucifixion itself he's always dead before the crucifixion Number eight, both both Jesus and Haman's execution are performed on a cross, not a stake as per Jewish custom. Number nine, in both instances, an accused is set free. Mordecai's in Esther's story, Barabbas in Christ's story. Number 10, the salvation of the people hangs in the balance. Number 11, Both stories include the Sakai ritual, that's a Persian ritual, of the casting of lots to determine fate. And that's a real telltale thing, because there's no reason that the Jews themselves should be casting lots, which is a Persian custom, unless these events are linked somehow. The very word Purim is supposedly the Persian origin derived from the root word meaning lots, yet no one has been able to trace the etymology of, of the term convincingly. Number 12, and I believe this one I actually got from a Jewish book, it has been speculated then that per comes from a Hebrew root meaning annulment, as in the annulment of a covenant. This is from a very high Jewish book, Oxford University Press. It's just not something just thrown away. Uh, It's in Numbers 30, 13 to 15. Every vow and every binding oath to afflict the soul her husband may establish or her husband may make it. This refers to Esther forcing an annulment of a covenant made by Haman to exterminate the Jews. But in Christian tradition, Christ also annulled the old covenant, replacing it with a new covenant, sparing his people. And number 13, while not in Josephus' text, traditionally the Feast of Purim begins sharply at 3 o'clock, the very time of Jesus' death as recorded in the New Testament.
0: Wow. Wow. And so, how does this end up? Well,
1: I think you got a problem. and the problem is in that Fraser, if he's right, it means it means World War II. it means everything else. it means Hitler, all these other things, because now you have a very un, you have a, a, a controversy that needs solving. And I to me, the way you solve that controversy, which without going down, uh, Frasier's path, is that you you simply say. Purim began as a play. John's Gospel, one or the other, became as gave birth as a counterplay. You can so find. So do you I th- think?
0: It- so what makes you say that Esther was first rather than John and Esther being the counter?
1: I don't really know. I, okay. To be honest with you, I, I'm not committed to either one. There's enough similarities that they have. One's got to set precedent over the other because there's there's too many similarities that you, know, that have, you have to account for. Uh, it, it, it seems to me that if John's gospel was written around 100 A.D., uh, that that's when it was put into print, whether where that play starts clearly is after the destruction of the temple, uh, where the Jewish Purim thing, they would say it's older than going all the way back, which I can't, I don't think any scholar believes that.
0: Yeah. What, what did we talk about before was the oldest dating that you know, or, or the uh, accepted dating of the book of Esther?
1: Uh it depends on which area you look at. They, they would say, originally, it, it's, it's at least 400-500 B.C. Then you start looking at it, and because it's very heavily tied the Book of Maccabees, which they would consider uh, is written about 200 B.C., but it only refers to the Feast of Mordecai. It doesn't refer to Esther. You have another, ser- very I think, is a very serious problem, which we talked about once before. Esther is not in the Dead Sea Scrolls.
0: Well, and you and I have talked a lot about the Dead Sea Scrolls and that being planted, essentially, or they're faked to attack Christianity.
1: Well, I think there's another side of that, too. I think what you've got here is looming, a looming problem that led, leads to World War II and things like that, is that you have not only a political problem, you have a theological problem. And so I think what they're really doing is trying to get over what, what Fraser has pointed out. I think you can equitably look at it and say, Esther is a play based on the Bacchae, taking the point, because it is a wine feast, just like the Bacchae, taking the point, the, the, the Dionysian point of view at that time was, if you, know, if you have quarreling parties, let's have a party, drink, we'll all get inebriated together, and the discussion will go the, the controversy will go away that's so, what
0: one, go ahead would it be correct to say that fraser essentially was the cause later cause of world war ii i think
1: i think that and there's also another episode i would say if you believe the jewish authorities authorities on this uh something that's hardly ever ever documented and that's in this i mean this is documented by the jewish side too this is probably the best book on the subject
0: make sure you hold it up high for us oh i have that book yeah reckless rights
1: uh princeton university press and it it talks it talks about all these things he and he believes what happened was I believe he was a protege of another guy named Ariel Tooff, who was the son of the. He was the son of the chief rabbi of Rome during Vatican II. I believe Ariel Tooff looked at what was going on in Vatican II and saw that the, thought there was a, an injustice being done, so he started looking into the Purim rites and to try to determine whether there was anything to this story, with what be, later became called. Uh, he calls it. You, know, you can't find this book because it was uh, censored, but you can find it in Amazon. I think AD Books. You could in India they're actually printing a version of it yet. It's called Blood Passover, which basically was that there we we're going to get into where this blood stuff comes from, is that there was this mystic, mystical Jewish cult, and I don't blame all the Jews on, it, but I think. He maintains there's something to it, where they would take a Christian, drain the blood out of it, either drink the blood or dry the blood. Some say they took the dried blood and baked it into perm cakes. Some say that the story is all made up. Uh, Ariel Tooth, and I think his name was Horowitz, looked at it and he said, the most outrageous stuff of these stories probably isn't true, but there is something to the story.
0: Now let me mention this. In my research, I had tracked the creation or the founding of the Puritans from the Purim. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I
1: think you could make a big argument that what happened—the most heretical group—if if you look at Gnosticism in general, I think Gnosticism was basically a Christian version of of mystical heretical Judaism. Um, I know that saying hermetical for a Jewish thing, that hermeticism itself is sort of a Christian version of the Kabbalah. Uh, but you have, you have the Cathars actually mentioned even in the Council of Nicaea. But I think what you see is this Gnosticism going in through the Cathars. The Cathars, when they ran out, they, they were basically drummed out of existence by themselves to a large degree. But what was left of them joined Calvinistic churches and became their own cult, which I think you could find that the the Cathars themselves had an alternate gospel of John called the secret gospel of John. And if you, I think it's uh, Milton's Paradise Lost. I could be wrong on it, but one of those texts was actually based, even though it became very popular, it's been proven to have been based on the secret gospel of John, which that was held in high regard by the Puritans.
0: Yeah, not only that, but the Puritans also uh, essentially only followed the Torah. They didn't follow the Bible, you know. Right. And so, and then this, you know, but if they're only following the Torah, why were Christians as a whole blamed for the Salem witch trials and all, you know? And I, yeah. I've, you know... Written a lot on on that subject and done a lot of research on that subject, but if they, you know Puritan comes from the Purim, and that and if they only follow the Torah, that really means that they weren't Christians, you know. They were more of a sort of mystical Jewish sect, then weren't they?
1: I would tend to think that they were Christians in somewhat name only, but they were also Calvinist, very heavily Calvinist type of thing. it's one of those things I'm not so sure I could wrap my mind around, say exactly what they were They they clearly had influence by the heretical Cathars, I think. Um, And that itself was a Jewish based mystical sect, I believe. But you, you see what I'm saying here is that you've got a problem here. And that problem ends up, and this is why I think the Dead Sea Scrolls is important. One side of it, you're looking for a political solution to this problem. The political solution is the Jews want their own land, which I support. That's fine by me. Uh, but the way they need to do that is they, they have to do kind of two sleight of hands to get to, to convince, to make this hold weight. And both of these events merge in the Dead Sea Scrolls. One is they've already turned Masada which is, people remember, that was the plateau where the Jews supposedly had their last stand against Rome and things. If you actually even look at the text, there's very scholarly, I don't have it right here right now, but there's a very some very scholarly research on it, saying really that the whole episode was invented by, uh, I can't think of his name right now, but he was a, a secret service person working with the British intelligence, and to, to establish even even he's considered a, a modern-day hero to a lot of these people, but his, his legend is being tar- tarnished. But he, I uh, can't think of his name right now, but he basically invented the Masada thing so that, so that modern-day Israel would have a George Washington-type event. And he was, him and his cohort were the ones that actually then presented the Dead Sea Scrolls at the night that, that Israel was claimed its own country— said here are the Dead Sea Scrolls they prove all this but the other the other thing that they had was
0: uh what May 13 1947 and that's also the date that a lot of the uh MKUltra stuff ironically is kicked off yeah and then uh the the guy who kicked off the counterculture aspect and magic mushrooms of MKUltra R. Gordon Wasson he was the uh, propagandist for J.P. Morgan-Bake, working for the CIA under M. Kiltra Subproject 58. His brother, Thomas Cam- uh, Campbell-Wasson, was, a, was the uh, first um, consul general of the new state of uh, Israel. And, uh, you know, if anybody wants to read on that, they can go to my website, gordonwasson.com. step back just for a second. Right. gordonwasson.com, and they can uh, see that right there. So, Thomas was the Consul General of the newly created State of Israel, founded May 13, 1948. He was assassinated by Jews on May 23, 1948, only three days after this CIA uh, file was written and 10 days after Israel was founded. So it's, you know, there's an interesting uh, story behind this, but this is all, you know, and this is coming directly off of the CIA's uh, website here.
1: There, there's a belief within, well, probably common belief, that Rome somehow had something to do with the Holocaust. This comes from the idea that these liturgies had the word, the Good Friday liturgies, had the phrase in it, perfidious Jews. They were praying for the perfidious Jews. And that was taken to mean, um, what they did is they took a phrase out of Latin, which was perfidium, and translated it as perfidious. And one, it just means those lacking faith. Whereas when you turn, translate it to perfidious, that you get all these scoundrel, you know, kind of evil connotations. And so if you look at some of the translations of the Bible, it becomes a very inconvenient translation out of something that there were just the original prayers had not no evil intent about them at all. They were literally just praying for the Jews that someday they would become Christians.
0: Right. So Thank- that, beca- I, was, Go ahead. I was just going to say, thanks uh, Steve Mercer for the donation. Really appreciate that.
1: The other book, and I believe I've got the last copy of this that you can get too. Uh, you're not going to find this anyways. Jesus, and Israel it's written by a French historian after World War II and this is kind of a weird story too his family was killed off during the Holocaust and he held it against Christianity he basically met before the Dead Sea Scrolls and with a bunch of Marxists and I believe that my personal belief is that's when they planned the the Dead Sea Scroll thing because they had all the people at this meeting we would have had you know copies that they could falsify and stuff but the main thing was number one they wanted to attack the catholic church for the term perfidious and the good friday prayers uh, and uh the other side of it is i think they wanted to take at least this group and this isn't just jews either because what you find is that the the biblique école in jerusalem at that time was run by very you know modernist orientated uh christian scholars and i believe all of them together had a, a goal of revamping christianity so what they tried to do is they they used the dead sea scrolls to interpret early christianity as being a gnostic cult correct and what happened over time no scholar believes that but the average seminary and all these Gnostic clergy people that I was talking about at the beginning, they all regard the Dead Sea Scrolls as authoritative. And that connects them to some of these hermetical texts. And so they've built and that's what's been influencing the churches since Vatican II. Vatican II, by putting its stamp of approval on this, basically is saying, we're opening the door to Gnosticism and Gnostic interpretation of Christianity. And I believe that's why most people left.
0: And so explain, how does this exactly lead to World War II and the Holocaust?
1: Well, it, even it, you, you can watch, if you want to be convinced of this, type in your browser, Haman and Hitler, or Haman and Christ, and you'll find lots and lots of articles and sermons and things where this analogy of, I mean, even even the the Nazis themselves considered their their Holocaust. We we mix up the Holocaust, but the Holocaust really goes back to the original story of Purim that Hitler believed that it it what should have been accomplished wasn't accomplished, and so he was going to accomplish it. And so the Jews today consider uh, Hitler as the modern day Haman.
0: And and, he, and Muslims he, and, it, and Muslims consider Hitler like a, a saint, which would tie into that. Which puzzle. would make
1: sense. Well, and that, yeah, and also, you probably don't know this, and I, I'm barely aware of it, but I'm aware of it. That the. I mean, it should be obvious that the Muslims have their own version of Esther, which is Shahrazad, which is a whole different story, which they say takes precedent over
0: this. And, and they, they, they not only that they have a whole entirely skewed Gnostic version of Jesus.
1: That's exactly right. So now, I mean, now you're beginning to see the, the the kind of three dimensional problem. Right,
0: here. and then and then the Nazi Party was founded by you know, and and I had taught on about this time last year, but the Nazi Party was founded by the Thule Society, which was founded by Baron von Sabatendorf, and so. And so- who who was an Islamist?
1: And I I would take it even farther than that, as I think the modern day liberals are based in Marxism, and Marxism is just another version. You know, it's just another tributary of the same thing.
0: And of course, it's all spun back onto the Christians. Everything that they do,
1: which we have nothing to do with it, really.
0: It's, right. Well I, well, I I do believe. You know, I've, I've never I've never met a a a leftist who cared about facts and research, you know, they base everything on hearsay and emotion and, and fallacious thinking. Well, I
1: mean, you you do have a problem here. And I I do think that the sanest way of looking at the problem. I mean, one thing you want to do, if you're going to do research is what's the other side say of this. Right. And if the other side has a story that makes some sense, it's not going to support your story, but it's going to be their version of the story. Well, I think the sanest way of looking at it is that the story of Esther in disguise—you would understand why they would disguise it—was their version of the crucifixion, and so that it, what it does is, it becomes an alternate attestation of the truth of the crucifixion because here you have another side telling their version of the story in their terms. But you know, there you have it. And, it, and if that story is true, then th- this whole thing of the Jews killing people yearly and stuff like that is just not true it's this was one event it didn't go back four or five hundred years it didn't continue except in maybe uh an unfortunate you know drunken revelries and things like that but it was basically two two traditions carrying forward in a time period where most people couldn't read the ones that could didn't have anything to read so they made a lot and people don't realize that if you go back in time you know, you maybe have one or two versions of a classical text to fall back on, and sometimes classical texts are only re- don't exist at all. They're only referred to by other texts. There's five thousand ancient versions of the New Testament.
0: Five, yeah, five thousand ancient versions of the New Testament.
1: Right, uh, you know, actually pieces existing papyri and things that actually. Uh, say this is a unique copy of this text. Obviously, not all of them are complete, but 5,000 versions.
0: That's pretty strong attestation to uh, its historical veracity, isn't it? I would think. But now you
1: have even more veracity. If you look at it, you've got this Logios of Papias, and you also have, I think, that you can look at Esther as being a disguised reference to the crucifixion, now you've got two other very reliable sources I think.
0: Right. Interesting. So and I'm just uh reading and replying to the people in the chat here. So uh you know, all of this comes forward. Hitler is trying to finish this this narrative, this argument. How how did the Nazis view it and of course they were involved in the hermeticism aspect and all of that too were not they
1: yeah i believe they call it herman or something like that um they had their own especially the gestapo had their own hermetic service that they would do they had their own temples right um, and you know maybe this is getting beyond the point
0: and Colonel but, Colonel Michael Aquino goes you know went over there and was doing some of his rituals in the old Nazi uh, temples or whatever, Cat, right. some castle or uh, something like that. I,
1: for my money, I think the biggest problem in the church is that you around five six hundred the Platonic academies were all put under that they they Rome refused to allow the Platonic academies to go. Old and the reason they did is they were all turning to the occult. And it, what happened is there was a meeting in 14 around 1430s that the muslims were beginning to take over constantinople which was the eastern orthodox church and they appealed to the western church to for for help. And they said they would merge with the roman catholic church if they just would provide help. What happened was they brought along a guy by the name of Jamistos Plethon, who was an, an occultist, a, a Gnostic, and he, he kind of chanted, you know, enchanted the, the Roman party with all these Neoplatonic texts. Uh, the Medici family got a hold of it and started sponsoring it and, and decided that they were going to fund the, the Renaissance, which was really the Renaissance of, of Gnosticism within the church. Uh, but they appealed to to Plato because Augustine said the next closest thing to Christianity was Plato. But the Platonism they were referring to wasn't the Platonism Plato ever, ever held. Right. So what happened is they ignored Augustine's warning that, well, Plato might be all right. Gnosticism is not because he condemned hermeticism, the whole chapter. Well, you and know. we
0: had, we had traced uh, Gnosticism all the way up to the uh, oh, geez. The Sufis and uh, you know and Islam,
1: mm-hmm. you know, uh, it's yeah. I, I mean,
0: so Chet, you know, for the for the audience who's interested in that, well, you and I did a show on it what a year ago, close to, and then uh, and then Todd and I did a a show or two on these connections as well, and you know, and you know, I remember driving to. Tahoe last summer with my son and I was talking to well it all started you know you're you're driving for eight hours and you're thinking about all this stuff you know and I forget who called who I'm in a call with with Lloyd DeYoung and uh, <clears throat> you know I'm like well if the if the Sufis have done all of this they are out there promoting this peaceful innocence while they're creating all of this warfare and and stuff going all around them Well they're way up there at the top you know controlling the madness
1: well just just consider the term perfidious that that literally ignited wars it re- literally ignited a change in the church and stuff and really it was just a mistranslation of an innocent term why why wouldn't you just say well you know we just mistranslated it or something like that there was an easy solution they didn't take it
0: so they, you're saying that they wanted
1: World War II. Ah, uh, this pretty much happened afterwards, where they wanted to to create the state of Israel and they wanted to accuse the church of something. Uh, but it was basically all stuff taken out of context. I I do believe that you there's a connection to an, a liberal mindset and all this, basically that's just trying to undermine religion in general by creating controversy.
0: Live Forever says, a riddle wrapped inside a mystery, inside an enigma, surrounded by a soft taco shell.
1: There you go. (laughs) That's probably the most wise thing somebody's going to say tonight.
0: (laughs) Right, yeah. So, interesting. Well, we're almost at an hour and a half here. Do you want to add anything else?
1: I'm not aware, and I don't know if you're aware, but I'm not aware of anybody else having this discussion ever anywhere. And I think, I hope I've convinced the listener that, It's the documentation is there. You maybe have to dig for it a little bit, but the documentation is there and it's scholarly sources. I just believe that, you know, I don't see any of it that undermines Christianity. I do see putting it in a proper context uh, that most people aren't aware of.
0: All right. Well, thanks, everybody, for your uh, participation tonight in the chat. Thanks to Steve for the support. Please uh, support the show on Patreon. Hit the super chat if you can before we close it up. You can also visit logosmedia.com and support the show there. Uh, You can uh, also, uh, you know, what Cash App and Bitcoin and stuff like that is on there. So really appreciate everybody's support and those who supported the show during the week. Steve, greatly appreciate your uh, research on this, and hopefully, we've brought people to further understanding on a delicate issue. I think you did a, a, a good job at tiptoeing, without you know, you know, people might need to play it two or three times to really get what you're saying there. But, uh, you know, and feel free to come back if you, you know, find more evidence and whatnot if we decide to cover this again.
1: Well, it might be a, it might be a thing where after a while you accumulate some questions and maybe we can maybe there's things I missed or, you know, could have done better. And, you know, we can address it again.
0: Great. Well, you. you're welcome. Thank you. And uh, thanks again, everybody in the chat. Uh, see you next week. I forget who's on next week now. <laughs> oh, well, I'll figure something out. So, uh, and thanks to the uh, mods and the uh, chat and all. I appreciate it. And uh, we'll see you next time. Probably same bat time, same bat channel. Have a great night, everybody.